this morning, please turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, book 1 of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, or by C.S. Lewis, Aslan, the great lion, willingly gives himself up to the white witch in exchange for the life of little Edmund Pevensey, a traitor. And of course, she kills Aslan and leaves his body on top of the great stone table. But when Edmund's two sisters, Lucy and Susan, returned to mourn for him, they noticed that the ropes that had held him down had been eaten away by mice. And Aslan's body is gone. And C.S. Lewis writes this, At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked round. There, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown back, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. But what does it all mean? asked Susan when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. At the manger that we celebrate and we remember hangs the shadow of the cross and the death of Jesus. And even there, there was a deeper magic, if you will, at work. Something that transcends even our deepest darknesses of sin and shame and all of our sorrows. The redeeming plan of God. And this morning, this is for you. God's redeeming plan is for you. Christmas is about our sin. It's not really about all the things we normally associate with it. And we preachers say things like that every year. But this holiday is about our sin. If we weren't sinners, none of this would be necessary. Jesus came to save us from our sins, not by demanding payment for them, but through forgiveness. Let me pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. And I pray now, God, that You would help us to focus on the things in front of us on this page. God, please help me speak with clarity. Help me be concise. Help me honor the text as You breathe it into existence through the hands of this author, Matthew. God, be with everyone here. Help them to hear and to listen, to understand, Father, but to believe more than anything else. I ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'll begin at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, 
she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, or an adorable little boy, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Mary was betrothed to Joseph for marriage, which in our day is like an engagement, but it's much more serious. To get out of a betrothal would require a divorce, which is what Joseph is going to do as far as he knows in verse 19. But rather than, of course, throw her out on the street, so to speak, he basically released her from her contract without making a scene, as he could have done. Joseph, the text says, was a just man, a righteous man under the law. Therefore, he's merciful, and he has to do this. He has to separate from her because as he saw it, as far as he knows, Mary is unclean. Mary has committed adultery. We don't know if Mary told Joseph exactly what happened or when or if, uh, or maybe as Mary began to show, he realized she was pregnant and he knew that he wasn't the father. And if Joseph was to be righteous according to the law, he can no longer be joined to Mary in marriage. Or he'd be made unclean by her. But Joseph isn't vindictive. He could have made quite a spectacle and ruined Mary's life according to the law, according to the law, and instead he resolved to divorce her quietly, instead of putting her on trial for adultery, which could result in her death. And the punishment for adultery, according to Deuteronomy, is stoning if Joseph chooses to go that route. But as we'll see in the life of Jesus, the law apparently does allow for compassion, and this is the way Joseph chose to use it. But he was resolved in verse 20. To break things off. But here's the thing. Mary wasn't unclean at all. Before Joseph and Mary ever came together, ever consummated their relationship, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So the conception of the baby in Mary's womb had not been by natural means. No man had slept with her. There had been no hint of adultery. The Holy Spirit had created the baby in her by a miraculous union with her natural body apart from any sexual relationship a miracle of god caused the conception of jesus and in verse 20 another miracle occurred an angel of the lord appeared to him in a dream and told joseph not to fear what marrying her will do to his righteousness or to his reputation don't be afraid to marry her so joseph is going to become a part of this scandal and we know it was a scandal we know people talked because later this is how they tried to demean Jesus, we didn't come from sexual immorality like you did, right? The angel calls him Joseph, the son of David, which is very significant in Matthew, considering that Matthew just told us that that's who Jesus was in chapter 1, the son of David. The prophecy then that a righteous branch would come from Jesse's line, this stump would be fulfilled through Joseph, the Messiah, The Christ, the anointed one, was to be born from the woman to whom Joseph was betrothed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God adopts Joseph, so to speak, in verse 21, to be the boy's father on earth by telling him that he will name him. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Save is what that means. For he will save his people from their sins. If we heard 
that in Aramaic, it would sound something like you will call his name Yeshua because he will Yoshia his people from their sins. Joseph found out in this moment that he would not be made righteous through the law then, but through the promise he hears from the angel who here is a messenger of the gospel. When the law comes to us, when the law hits us as it hits Joseph, it says, be afraid. Be very afraid. You sinned against God. You lack my righteousness. But the word of the gospel is, do not fear, Joseph. Your plan to remain righteous, the way you're going to go about it, is going to go by the wayside now. Don't be afraid to marry her, even though it's against the law. Since she's already pregnant, as everyone else will think. The Holy Spirit will do this, which means Joseph has been removed from the equation here in bringing about the seed and staying righteous. This is the gospel. This is the gospel to Joseph. He's taken out of it. God is going to bring about the work. And Joseph can't contribute anything to it but to receive it and believe it. Joseph will be thrown right into Mary's public disgrace now. Everything he was hoping to preserve by his plan, a resolution according to the law, now it's blown up. Now it's not going to go the way he thinks. And it's worse or might be worse than he can imagine because Joseph's story is going to have to be, no, 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 we're not doing anything wrong. She's not unclean. This baby is from the Holy Spirit, which doesn't happen every day. But here is the promise of the seed, which is going to be the salvation of the world. Therefore, his name is his purpose. Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And it might be the case when we think of Jesus dying for sinners, that all we think about is how he washes away our guilt so that we won't suffer eternal condemnation. And that's absolutely true. Thank God and praise God forever that that's the case. But here... It's like the destiny of the sinner is not where the primary focus is. Although it certainly comes into view when we're talking about sin and the need for forgiveness. Here in this text, at least in this moment, and we'll do the second part of this to 25 on Christmas Eve, part two, if you will. Here the focus falls squarely on our rescue from sin. Jesus will save us from our sins themselves in some way. He will rescue us from what they are doing to us. He will take away the sentence of death they speak over us and hold over us and with which they crush us with guilt and futility and emptiness and shame and immorality. He will come and rescue us by forgiving us. We hear these stories every year. I hope we never get tired of hearing about this, of the deeper magic that was happening in the birth of Jesus. Of course, it's not magic. C.S. Lewis is writing a story using a metaphor. But the essence of it, the idea of it, of the plan God has decreed from eternity, that through the incarnation of Jesus, His Son in human flesh, who will willingly subject Himself to death for all us traitors against God, He is going to rise again. He is going to conquer. And through this, conquer sin and death and save His people from their sins. These things are not the ABCs 
of Christianity and then you move on to the real stuff. All Scripture is as beautiful as it is inspired and true and good. All of it is beneficial for us. All of it is good to know and to study. But God's Word takes the time to tell us that one thing of all this truth is of first importance. That's what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say about this gospel. The message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners, for you and for me. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's almost like that's not as fun or as interesting to study as some of the other things we can study about the Bible and study to the point where we lose our minds studying, trying to figure out and know more than God has revealed to us. The message of the forgiveness of sins, we've got that. We hear about that every Christmas and every Easter. We've done that. I did that when I was a kid. I did it in VBS. I've handled my business with God. Tell me now about me. Preach Christ and me improve, not Christ crucified for sinners. Tell me what to do. Tell me how to live. Sure, yes, because when the preacher tells you what you should do, people do it. It's totally easy and simple. It's amazing how that works. Pastor, tell us what to do so that we can, you know, not do that. People do this all the time. What should I do? This. No, I'm not going to do that. I wanted a different answer. I wanted to go a different way. Let's move on from the milk of the Word to the meat where the real stuff is. That's what the author of Hebrews must have been talking about in chapter 6 when he talks about moving on from the elementary principles of Christ, right? No. That isn't what he's talking about. The writer of Hebrews was actually telling us something very timely for Christmas when we consider the coming of Jesus into the world to save us from our sins. He was telling us that in light of the fact that now Christ is our high priest and the mediator of a new and better covenant than the law, we ought to quit believing that what we have to do is secure our own salvation by going back to the beginning again and again and trying to get forgiven and justified over and over and over. Stop believing that your sins are not forgiven, Christian. Stop trying to atone for them. That's elementary. That's first things. Christ died to save you from your sins, and He succeeded in this. The proof is that God raised him from the dead. We need to move into the depths, actually, of the fact that this Jesus is actually a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul who will not leave us or forsake us even as we struggle to hold on to our faith. That's what is lacking in the church. Faith. Faith. Telling people what to do only increases their guilt. Now, are there times when the Scripture tells us what we should do? Absolutely. There are commands here. They are given to be obeyed. We don't get to run from that. We don't get to put it off. The Christian desires holiness, to be conformed to the image of God. Here's the thing. Christ is doing that. Christ is doing that. Jesus came for the purpose of saving us from our sins and by doing that makes us righteous already. He doesn't just clean our slate, pay our bill, and then the rest is up to us. That's not what Jesus did. That's an elementary understanding of what Jesus did. We need to go deeper. 
into what Jesus did. For, it says later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, by a single sacrifice, this priest, Jesus, by the giving of himself as the sacrifice, has perfected then at the cross for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus came to save us from what sin does to us, including how it separates us from God and keeps doing that, at least from our end, when we give in to temptation. Now that Jesus has come, however, there's literally no need for you and I to go backwards and keep trying to lay the foundation for a right relationship with God. The truest and most joyful news is the for you-ness of Christmas. It is finished before God and for you and for me. Most of us go in and out of church and Sunday school hearing sermons, hearing teaching, right? It's not usually the case that, well, I shouldn't say not usually, but it's often not the case that a pastor gets to interact with everyone in the congregation, right? Depending, of course, on its size. But I do get to interact quite a bit with people. And when people really begin to open up and share what's on the inside, what they're really dealing with, their doubts, their fears, their hesitation, and Frustration and unbelief, it almost always boils down to one thing. They don't believe their sins are forgiven. They, they are still trying to please God by, in effect, saving themselves. We, we, we believe the cross was necessary, but I think sometimes many of us in our struggles with faith think it only did so much. It did a lot, but it only did so much. Most of the time, I struggle, Tony, to really believe that my sins are actually forgiven. I used to think I was projecting in my sermons, but then the more people I talk to, the more I found are the same way as I am. I I don't preach for champions of the faith because I'm not one, right? I, I don't have that for you. Some people express their lack of assurance in the forgiveness of sins with fear and with timidity and silence. They don't really want to talk about their struggles. They don't want to talk about having to deal with it or, or have others know about it. Because we, we, we can tend to cultivate a culture where if you're actually a sinner, I'm not talking about like, I didn't read my Bible this morning. I lost my temper in the drive through I mean like real sins, right? That's facetious, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. We don't want, we, we cultivate a culture where Christians don't do that kind of stuff. Good people don't do that kind of stuff. And if you do that kind of stuff, and if you admit it, maybe you're not what you say you are. Because I don't do that, and I don't do this, and I don't go there, and I don't say that. And I, I, I think folks mean well when they do this, but we're, words create culture, right? Others try to cover up for their lack of assurance or their unbelief of forgiveness by trying harder than everybody else to be righteous. And it's not that, beloved, strive for holiness, strive to lay the past behind. I'm, not, I'm saying that when we're doing that to feel saved, to guarantee that we're saved, we aren't looking at Christ. And if we aren't looking at Christ, if we don't have faith in the Savior to save us, 
we are not being saved. The object of our faith is what saves. The issue is, both of those groups, no matter what side of the spectrum you're on there, or where you are in the middle, everybody tires, gets tired of hearing about grace. Because we think that's not what we really need. Everybody on the spectrum thinks we need something other than the message of forgiveness. And I know people will disagree with that. The proof is that we don't really believe, or that the proof that we don't really believe our sins are forgiven is all around us, though. It comes out, for one thing, in our ongoing sinfulness. It comes out in the fact that we, their joy is in such short supply among Christians. We're more terrified of what's going on in the world than anybody else. We lack patience with one another. We don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. We immediately think the other person meant to hurt me, meant to do me wrong. So whatever they said, we're going to take the the, uh, meanest thing that could have meant and believe that that's who they are and they've wronged us. And we don't have any security inside. We lack kindness with one another. We lack kindness towards our neighbor, towards our enemies. Let's not kid ourselves. Most of us would really like our enemies to be in hell. Beloved, that's not why the church is here, to make sure that's where they go. We're here to beg with them not to. We don't forgive one another. right? Not for real. Relationships don't get restored, and sometimes they can't in a world fallen, right? Sometimes some relationships can't be recovered to the way they were before, no question. But I'm talking about just in the church how we can argue and fight and get on different sides of an issue and then we're done with each other. And We're often frustrated, impatient, abrasive, easily offended, thin-skinned people. Why are we like this when our sins are forgiven? Why are we like this when no matter what happens to us, no matter what is done to us, we cannot lose this. That Christ paid it all. That's not just for when we die. Right? We need a Savior now, for now, and we have a Savior now, for now. He's saving me, saved me from what I do to myself because of sin. And I might still have to deal with many of the consequences of the things I do wrong. But before God, I have the righteousness of Christ. I'm clothed in His work for me. That's what it means to be a Christian. To have God dress you. To have God call you His own. He died, Jesus died for us as that, as sinners, not for what we could be if we got cleaned up. He died for us while we were dirty. So become a good Christian. You don't get cleaned up and get things together and then come to Christ. You don't get cleaned up before you take a shower. I think the bulk of our struggles, I know there are other things going on, right? But I think the bulk of our struggles, of our insecurity, of our lack of assurance is that we're still trying to find something to really save us because we think I want to feel this and that's not what was promised that you would feel it 
you may or may not feel forgiven. That doesn't mean you're not forgiven. You may not feel like a great Christian today. It doesn't mean you're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ before Almighty God. And when we read in Scripture that the most important thing in Scripture is the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners, I don't think what he means there is, so get it out of the way and move on because we've got work to do. I think he tells us that, that it's of first importance because he knows we're not going to believe it and we're going to get tired of hearing about it and thinking we need to move beyond it. Beloved, here's the thing. Every good work you and I do that is not done out of faith in Christ Believing that He is my forgiveness and He is my righteousness, everything I do to try to get God's approval, therefore not done in faith, is a sin. Do you know that that's what Scripture teaches in Romans 14, 23? Whatever does not come from faith is sin. So, where, what point are we trying to get to? Like, can we evaluate ourselves that deeply? We don't know ourselves like the Holy Spirit does. And the Bible comes along and says, listen, you're two times the sinner you're ready to admit or realize you are. We not only sin when we sin and break God's law, we sin when we try to obey it in our own strength and fall short of it. We sin when we do what we do out of fear that if we don't do it, we're not saved. That's not faith. That's saying Christ is not a sufficient Savior. That's what it is to do good works, believing that that is what will make me right with God. We do good works for the benefit of our neighbor because we are right with God. It's finished. That's not the fight we should be engaged in. i got to try. When you're told to examine yourself, to make sure you're in the faith, to make your calling and election sure, what do you do to do that? Where do you look? Where do you go? He came to save us from our sins. So this morning, I'm not trying to tell you, don't do good works. But I am trying to tell you that until our souls are at rest in the promise of the gospel, the This shall be's of the gospel. We can't do good works that glorify God. So today as we prepare to close, I want you to know something. No matter what side of the spectrum you're on in your ongoing struggle to believe the gospel and that you're saved and that your sins are forgiven, I want you to know this. When Jesus came to save us from our sins, He didn't fail. He left nothing on the table. Nothing undone for our salvation. Everything that sin has done and is doing to you does not have the final say over you. Remember that this Christmas. You cannot wrap that and put it under a tree. He came to save you from your sins and He did. So let me close with this quote. I hear the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Receive Christ. Believe the gospel. Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever.